Let's return this afternoon to 1 Timothy 1, page 1177 in your Bibles, page 1177, 1 Timothy 1, we'll read verses 12 through 17. The gospel of salvation in which the Lord Jesus displayed his abounding grace to Saul of Tarsus, the chief of sinners, leads to doxology. 17 will be our text. 12 through 17, 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent or arrogant opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And now our text. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we love the Romans doxology. Often I'll get a request, Pastor, can we sing the Romans doxology again? And I know it's getting time again. We'll have to do that. But have you ever heard of the Timothy doxology? Or the Timothy doxologies. Chapter 1 has a doxology. And the last chapter of 1 Timothy has a doxology. If you turn in your Bibles to chapter 6. We'll read the second doxology as well. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. Speaking of God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And now back to chapter 1. Verse 17, let's read that doxology again. These two are closely connected. One, verse 17. 
to the king of the ages or to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And in the 1870s, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, Walter Smith, put these two doxologies, these Timothy doxologies together in a song, immortal, invisible, God only wise, which Lord willing will sing at the end of the sermon. The Timothy doxology. It's like you're reading through the Bible and suddenly out comes a chorus of praise to God in the, in the middle of a bunch of teaching. And that's what Paul does here again. We want to ask three questions about the Timothy doxology here in verse 17. What's it doing? What's it doing here? Why is it here? Secondly, what does it mean? And thirdly, what are we to do with it? What do we do with it tomorrow morning? How do we live with this doxology? So first, what's it doing here? Remember, Paul has given his testimony. I love to tell the story. It's done so much for me. And that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. And he tells the story of God's overflowing grace in his life as a persecutor, a blasphemer, an arrogant opponent of the gospel, of Christ, of the church. Category one sinner. And then he extols the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the patience of God, and saving him, and then judging him faithful, and then appointing him a servant of the gospel. And he gets overwhelmed. And that leads to a doxology. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Matthew Henry writes, that which we get the comfort of, God should get the glory of. Remember in Romans 9 or Romans 11, the Romans doxology, how it ends for from him. And through him and to him are all things. To him belongs the glory forever. Amen. All things are from God. Our salvation too is from God. But they're not only from God, they're to take us back to God. And that's what this doxology is doing here. Oh, the Lord Jesus has saved me, but Paul doesn't stop with his salvation. Because his salvation came from God to take him back to God. And so he ends with a doxology. It brings him back to God. Back to the throne of God and exalting the glory of God. He's exalting the goodness of God who generously gives to us when we don't deserve it. He's exalting the love of God who gave his life for us when we hated him. Exalting the holiness of God in which he gave our sin full justice in Jesus Christ on the cross. Amazing. The faithfulness of God in which he kept his promise to send his son. 
The patience of God in which he puts up with so much in our sins and failings and weaknesses and inconsistencies and covers them in the blood of Christ. His wisdom in the awesome way in which he brought together our salvation through the birth, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And he stands amazed. It's a reminder, congregation, and here's here's a danger. We have a Christ-centered faith. The Bible teaches us that. But don't fall into the error of a Jesus-only faith. A Jesus-only faith. Because the Bible proclaims a triune God faith. That our salvation is from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. And then the Son, through the Spirit, leads us back to the Father. Leads us back to the Father. In fact, Jesus said that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm here to get you to the Father. And that's where this doxology takes us to. The Son saved me through the Spirit to bring me back to God because I was far away from God in my sin. The work of Jesus is to get you back to God the Father. Let's be warned against a Jesus-only faith. It's Christ-centered. Our access to God is through the Son in the Spirit, through Christ crucified. That's our access point. Vital. No other way. But that's not the stopping point. The end point is the spirit, power, the son's mediation takes you to the father, takes you to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever. And that's the purpose of our salvation, doxology. Why did God save Paul? Why did he save you? Why did he save me? To turn us into a praising people, a doxological people. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm afraid too often we become the own stopping point of our lives, our saved lives. And if I'm having a hard time and things are difficult, that becomes the focus, the center. And worries and complaints then take center stage. And I can lose sight of the doxology. I can lose sight of the God-exalting vision of life. Be assured. Congregations, we said this morning, be assured. God loves you so much in Christ that when he brings trouble and sorrow into your life, it's only because, not because he's pushing you away, he's drawing you in, bringing you closer to him. He's leading you to himself. That's the confidence every believer has. Our whole life is his gift. So so may God use a verse like this also, the Timothy doxology, to bring us to repentance for 
forgetting the glory of God as the be-all, end-all of our salvation and of the life he has given us to live. And may he open our eyes to see the glory of God and to live for that glory. All things are from him, through him, and to him. To him belongs the glory. But what does that mean, secondly, to give honor and glory to God? To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Since I was very little, I was taught to, to pray and to say, help me to do everything to your honor and glory. And so often I'm afraid I didn't have a clue of what I was saying. Those were just words and they sounded pious and a good Christian says those things. But what on earth does it mean? To live to the honor and glory of God. Well, it's as simple as it's profound. It's not complicated. It means that in all things, you take a break and you give space to doxology. Whether you're praising or crying, Whether things are going well or things are going poorly. You see the glory of God and you stop and you praise him. And you acknowledge his greatness. And you acknowledge that he really is the be all end all. That's what it is to give honor and glory to God. What does this doxology mean? Let's look at it one phrase at a time. First, to the king of the ages be honor and glory forever and ever. That could be translated to the king eternal or the king across all the ages. From beginning to the end, the Lord God, the triune God, the Father through the Son in the Spirit reigns across the ages. Kings rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall. Governments rise and fall. But this God is king forever. He never rises. He's always been. He never falls. He'll never change. He never loses his sovereignty, power, authority, and dominion. It's never election time for God where we decide whether we vote God in again or not. He's been in control and in charge of the universe for eons, and that's not going to change. The king eternal, the king of the ages. Many kings have tried to dethrone him. You know them, Pharaoh. He said, who's the Lord? I own the world. Pharaoh defied him, but God brought Pharaoh down. Caesar was worshipped as Augustus, the august one. And the emperor called, claiming to be God, but the Caesars are no more. Do you know of any left? They're no more. And it was, I thought at one time, these guys are invincible. They are forever. No, they're not. Herod was worshipped as a god. Behold the voice of a god and not a man. And, And the people bowed down to him and then the Lord struck him with worms and he was no more. The Herods are no more. 
No one can stand against him and win. He's the one and only eternal ruler. Yes, Christ Jesus also is the king of kings and lord and lords. And he's at the right hand of the father. The father's not alone on the throne. He and the son work together as king in perfect harmony. But the son rules for the glory of the father. The son is subduing all opposition. And when the kingdom is perfect and complete, it says in 1 Corinthians, he'll hand it to the father. And the father will reign alone as king forever and ever. He'll be all in all. Secondly, to the king immortal be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Immortal can also be translated incorruptible, imperishable. He cannot die. He cannot decay. He cannot go bad like cream in a refrigerator. He can't be corrupted like a government that's been in office for 10 years that tends to be about the life expectancy of a government, quite short, about 10 years before it's overcome by fraud and scandal and corruption. This God is incorruptible. There's no expiration date in God's kingship. His reign is as perfectly pure and clean and free of scandal now as it was over thousands of years ago. To the beginning of the world's existence. Not only is his reign pure, it cannot be impure, it cannot be corrupted. He cannot go bad. He cannot age or get sick or weary or die. Immortality and incorruption are impossible in this fallen world. Whoever trusts in human authority will be disappointed. Science has not made an ounce of progress in solving the problem of change and decay in the human race. The law of entropy shows that the entire universe is running down. The shopping industry is built on the fact that cars break down, clothes wear out, and phones become obsolete. Metal fatigues and cracks. Civilizations have a lifespan. They rise and they fall. Everything falls apart. Everything is mortal. Everything is subject to mortality. Everything's corruptible except for God. Isn't it amazing to live in the hand of God who's incorruptible? You can totally trust him with your life with your present, with your future, with your family. So we're reminded here not to put our trust in anything or anybody inside creation. It cannot uphold or cure your mortal life, but make your dwelling place with the eternal God who's immortal and incorruptible. Yes, we will one day be raised to immortality, but our immortality depends on his immortality. His is inherent to himself. Ours is dependent on his. Thirdly, to the king invisible. To the king invisible be honor and glory forever and ever.
The Timothy doxology in chapter 6 says, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is unseeable. He has no physical body or form. He cannot be seen. Oh, the Bible says he has eyes to see you, ears to hear you, hands to help you, feet to run to you in your time of need. But his eyes are the ultimate ones. His ears are the ultimate ones. His hands are the ultimate ones. They're invisible. They're real. But they're invisible. The children's catechism puts it so well. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God. But he always sees me. Exactly. Invisible. And he dwells in unapproachable light. The glory of his presence is so bright and awesome. We cannot look at the dazzling brightness of his glory and survive. There's only one way we can see him and live. And that's through a mediator, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's invisible. And I think that's the attribute we like least. We want to see him. We want to touch him. The nations say, where is your God? He's not real. Nobody's ever seen him. We went into outer space, said the Soviet cosmonaut, and we never saw God. The world demands a God that's visible, tangible, controllable. That's why we want to be visible. Because if he's visible, I can put him in a box. I can control him and make demands of him. But when he's invisible, he's sort of like out of control, out of our control. We don't like that. It flies in the face of our desire to be gods. But awesome invisibility. He's beyond our ability to capture him. To the king invisible. To the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. We glorify and honor him when we confess that he's the only true God and there is no other. All other gods of all other religions are false. And the proof is that all other gods keep fading from the scene. Where is Baal today? Gone. Where's Asherah today? Gone. Where's Milcom today? Gone. Where's Chemosh today? Gone. Where's Artemis or Diana, goddess of the Ephesians? She had a temple in Ephesus that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, with 127 marble pillars 60 feet high. And Diana, Artemis, stood inside the temple as an enormous statue of gold. She seemed immortal and she seemed eternal to the Ephesians. But where is she now? The gospel of Christ came and as Demetrius the silversmith worried, Diana is going to get killed by this. And she was. Diana is no more. Artemis is no more. Tossed onto the scrap heap of history. If you want to see a little bit of evidence, go to the basement of the British Museum of History, and there's a few pieces of pillar left. Our God who made heaven and earth, who sent his son into the world to save sinners, 
poured out his Holy Spirit to give us faith. He's the only God who's real, eternal, almighty, alive, saving, cannot die. The only one worthy of your trust, only one worthy of worship, the only one who will not disappoint. John 17, verse three, this is eternal life that they know you, said Jesus, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ is not another God. He's one with the one true God. He is the one true God. So now what do we do with this doxology, thirdly? What does it mean to you on Monday morning? How does it affect your life in a practical way? It's important for us to see that doxologies dot the landscape of Paul's writings. At many times in his epistles, he erupts into a word of praise. As it were, in the middle of nowhere, suddenly we get a doxology. I'm going to give you, I think, six or seven examples. Romans 1. Paul is condemning idol worship. And he says of idol worshipers, they worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. And he says the word creator. And he breaks out into a doxology. They worship and serve the creature instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And there's a little doxology there to fight idolatry. You use it to fight idolatry. You see the false gods. You think of how empty they are, and that leads you to realize how blessed the true God is and how blessed you are to know him. And then in Romans 9, he's speaking of the privileges of the covenant people, the Jewish people. All the privileges in the covenant, and the greatest privilege they have is that from their race, Romans 9 verse 5, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. He mentions Christ and he breaks out into doxology. It's like he can't help it. He's overwhelmed. He's God over all, blessed forever. And in Romans 11, after speaking about the wonderful mystery of the election of Jews and Gentiles, now God is working out his election plan so that Jews and Gentiles are being gathered together as one tree, one family tree in Christ. You know the doxology, the Romans doxology. All oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God and he ends for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And then at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, Paul is writing about the struggles he's been through and how the enemies have attacked him. But he says, the Lord stood by my side and protected me against many evil assaults. And then he goes on to say, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And then he breaks out into another doxology. It's like he's overwhelmed by the Lord's protecting power. To him be the glory forever. Amen. One more. 
Ephesians 3, Paul's describing how through the ministry of the gospel, God's doing this amazing work of building a Jewish Gentile family. And at the end of that, he says in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He stands amazed at the the glorious work of God building a church. Unthinkable. And it's not only in Paul's writings. You find it in Peter, in the book of Hebrews, in Jude, the great doxology at the end of Jude, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and bring you faultless before his throne. Write that one. And many in the book of Revelation. The Bible is teaching you teaching me that our lives should be filled with doxologies. Not only on Sundays when we're gathered and we sing, but on Mondays in the trenches of life. Just like when Paul in Romans 1 is speaking about idolatry, and I'm sure he's just disgusted with the idea of worshiping snakes and lizards and, and, and dung and whatever people worship. Like, what a stench. And then he thinks about the greatness of the creator, right? That's how God wants us to live our lives. To break out into a song or exclamation of praise to our God, whether we're alone or with others, and stand amazed at who God is right in the middle of the muck, of the mess, of the trouble, also of the joys and the glories of life. When we experience his protection in a time of danger, glory be to God. When we experience his direction in a time of choosing or confusion, we'll pray for his help, we'll receive direction, and sometimes we'll move on without a doxology. No, offer a doxology. When he blesses us in a time of hardship, I never expected that 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 turbulent water would become an oasis of refreshment for me. Glory be to God. When we see people saved, when we see them growing in their faith, when we study a passage of scripture and see how wonderful God is, when we see his hand in our lives and in our children's lives, when he blesses us with Christian schools for our children. You ever had that? You're, you're at a membership meeting of of, of one of our schools and you're seeing the work that's going on and the staff and the board and the instruction and you erupt in praise, at least within your glory be to God. All honor and glory is yours, O oh God, that we get to enjoy this. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, there's no God like you. And even when we witness terrible things, deep darkness and decay, like Paul looking at Gentile idolatry, or us facing the drag queen culture, or just people filling their lives with stuff and hoping that they'll be happy, and our minds are lifted up to the beauty and the glory of our all-satisfying God and say, 
Glory be to God, you are so full and all satisfying. You fill our lives with everything good. There's no one like you. You are joy. To God be the glory. Whether you eat or drink, says Paul, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Breakfast is a great time for doxology. And that way we close our breakfast with prayer. Thanks be to God for taking care of us again. What does it mean on Monday morning? May our lives be filled with doxology. You remember the story about J.S. Bach when he composed music at the beginning of every piece of music he would write J.J. Jesu Yuva, Jesus help me. And remember what he would write at the end of each piece? S.D.G. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory or to God be the glory alone. Well, may we live each day with sighs and tears and joys, thanksgiving and prayers and questions and doxologies. And uh, don't forget doxologies because he's done great things for us. He's worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. And the 24 elders fell down before him who's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen.